0: introduce the next speaker this morning, uh, David Clifford, David is a professor in both neurology and medicine uh, at, um, at Washington University and will talk about something that represents um, uh, another organ damaged by HIV, and uh, to do that, he will tell us about uh, uh, hand, uh, HIV associated neurocognitive disorders David.
1: so much, Paul. It's always a, a real pleasure to get to address this uh, audience that comes to the IAS meetings. I consider you really uh, a wonderful group that's doing uh, such important work. Um, <coughs> oh, where's my pointer to move slides forward? Oh, there it is. Gotcha. Um, and so, so uh, you know, it's really great for me to get a chance to be a gadfly uh, for the brain and its importance with the group that's, that's really giving uh, phenomenal care to a very complicated uh, and very important group of individuals who happen to be living with HIV. So we're gonna talk today about uh, the brain and cognitive disorders. You don't have to believe everything I say, but taxpayers are the, the main people I'm uh, uh, dependent on. And so although I do talk to drug companies, uh, they aren't really influencing me. I hope by the end of the day that you'll have a, a more current understanding about uh, HIV complications in the brain, uh, maybe a little bit of an idea about what you should look for and, and a few tools that you might want to consider in your practices for looking, and uh, to understand where we're looking for ways to improve this uh, and treat it better. So, of course, uh, I, you know, I often point out that the, the virus is, is most important in the brain and it affects the spinal cord, the peripheral nerves, even the muscles, but, but because the brain is what makes us really unique. It's the non-interchangeable organ. Uh, kidneys are really important. You should take care of them, but you can switch them out. You can't switch out a brain. Uh, so so it, it goes to show that this is probably the most important area to understand in detail. Um, and We know from early in the epidemic how devastating the virus is in the brain. It clearly gets into the brain almost from day one, and it's there for the entire time that people are infected. And if you don't treat the infection, uh, it causes a very obvious dementia where people lose their ability to focus their thoughts, to concentrate, everything about them, their thinking and their motor uh, activities slow down as if they're just operating in molasses. Uh, And even though they can compute and do things, they don't do it well, and they have sort of swings of behavioral change that can go everything to manic and really unusual uh, behaviors to a very flat, depressed affect that confuses you and doesn't allow you to know what's going on. And the manifestations in the brain for this are quite clear, and, and the consequences are clear. This occurs with advanced disease with low CD4 counts, It's a progressive disorder and untreated. People usually died within six months with dementia. So it's really a a thing that we aren't seeing now. Uh, It correlates to some degree with the virus in the brain and you can see this in the spinal fluid as well. And so usually people had this condition, had uh, relatively high viral loads and they also had marked immune activation in the central nervous system which we could follow and correlated best with the degree of impairment they had and finally, uh, you can see the pathology. There are cells infected with the virus in the brain, these multinucleated giant cells that we saw. And we saw the brain devastated, shrinking within the skull uh, with marked atrophy. And much of the connecting tissue, uh, the white matter, where all the connection, connecting fibers are in the brain, uh, was damaged and showed up abnormal on an MR scan. Well, um, As you're well aware, uh, things have improved from bad old days, and we've seen this list of 26 uh, antivirals that has totally changed the picture that we have. And so neurologists have gone back and said, okay, let's look at this business again, and we'd better classify less severe disease or we're out of business. And so we've got a three-class system now that uh, we were forced to devise at this terrible place, Frascati. So sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Frascati classification or diagnosis of HIV. It's referring to a place just outside Rome where the NIH banished us to make up this three-tier system. Uh, So it's a hard life being in the ivory tower sometimes. Um, But um, basically, uh, there's a, a very mild, mild and severe disorder. And what they consist of, the the severe one, is just about what I showed you to begin with. Very severe thing that interferes in a big way with people's ability to live and do their normal things. The more mild disorder clearly still has abnormalities when we test people and they tell us that it impacts on their life. They're not able to do things the way they used to. So it matters in their lives. But the majority of what we see nowadays are people who don't test well when we give them tests, but they don't really notice anything. And to be honest, you and I probably don't notice much when they come into our offices and, and see us. They're not complaining. We just—they seem like pretty much themselves. So the question is, does this big thing matter, or should Clifford go home and quit coming to these uh, meetings? So, um, so I'm asking you as uh, audience response. Uh, Does this category, people who don't score well on tests, is that a group of people who just need to learn how to take tests better? Um, Does it mean that they're really stable but they have other problems that make them not score so well? Are they people that are still at risk for getting worse related to this, or are they just depressed and an antidepressant will fix it? So what do you think? wondering what the outcome would be, but uh, you're good test takers because you know that I wouldn't be asking uh, to set you up for this, but do you really believe it? To be honest, um, I I actually, deep down in my heart, have sort of favored most of the other things in this category, but um, you're right. Um, Actually, the latest data that we uh, showed at the CROI coming out of uh, the charter uh, and I just wanted to, to share this uh, latest look at this problem of what does it matter to not be very good taking the tests. Uh, so we looked at this, and we did it in the charter study, which is a large, multi-center national study where we've enrolled people from clinics at six HIV study centers around the country, and we very carefully taught each of the centers to, to characterize neurocognitive impairment, looking at multiple types of neurologic function with multiple tests and with excellent norms. But we've gone further, and we've tried to say, well, also, what do people tell us about what's happening in their lives? So more than just, you know, are they complaining to us about not being able to do X, Y or Z, but we very carefully assess with standardized questionnaires about activities of daily living, functioning in life, and we actually measure performance in things like how do they set up meds or other. Uh, standard ways to look at the ability to function in life and do tasks. And the bottom line is that you're, you're right. This, this business with the test taking uh, can't be written off so quickly because those that this is the proportion that remain asymptomatic and uh, people that score normally on the test remain asymptomatic a lot of the time, whereas this ANI category really predicts very statistically a much greater a threefold greater risk of deteriorating and losing your ability to function normally in life so those of us that maybe want to just say you know go away quit bothering us about this problem in your population that half or so of patients are not scoring like they should on tests it's it's too soon to that to do that uh, and the fact is that we don't understand exactly why that's happening so we need to get to, to the mechanism, but um, you know, we can't do uh, the, the George Bush mission accomplished in neurology yet because we're still seeing problems and they do seem to get worse when people don't score normally. So it may be that we need to be tracking populations better, and I know very well that in your practice you can't do that charter battery of tests. So, um, you know there are other things that you can look with very little equipment and very little time at how people are performing and one of the ones that we've set up that uh, Ned Sector developed and did specifically for use in international settings where background in education and and language and so on is not necessarily easy to to do normal neuropsych testing is the international HIV dementia scale, and it 's a very simple test where You teach people four things. You test the speed of their finger tapping and measure it just with your watch. Uh, You teach them a task of placing their hand rapidly in three different positions time after time and see how quickly they can learn to do that uh, quickly. And then you check their recall. And this scale can be used and it it picks out people with dementia just beautifully all the time. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not so good or the mild, mild uh, impairment, as you might guess. So we're looking very hard at uh, a little bit more structured test, and uh, we're looking at, and, and uh, I think that Turner, uh, uh, Overton, and and others who started the work at our place in Howard, Alabama, uh, are going to be publishing very shortly on the Moca or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. It's something to consider in your practices. It takes about 10 minutes. It's standardized. It's free. Uh, and it gives a broad and sort of balanced test that people tolerate well and you can repeat in the office uh, for bedside scoring. And so uh, it's, it's a way uh, that you can get this that you don't have to pay a lot for assessment uh, of the neurocognitive function and allows you to follow it. So, you know, it's, it's just really important. And I think one of the things I want you to leave with is the notion that, The old HIV dementia may be a totally different disease than this new disease that has impairment on testing. Uh, They're both potentially serious and both potentially need to be understood. The old one was probably very heavily driven by the virus, uh, and you're doing a great job, and there's nothing I would say to stop you from doing that. But the question is, could we make things better for our patients by understanding this better? Uh, The evidence for the virus being the prime driver is not as good as we'd like nowadays. And even these cytokines, the activation markers that used to correlate well, don't correlate as well. And of course, we're not seeing so many brains because our patients aren't dying. But when we get a chance to examine the pathology, it's very bland, it's really hard to see what's going on. So we're struggling to understand what it is that's driving this impairment. And I'd like to take you through some of the hypotheses and things that we think are contributing, because attention to all of these may be the best way uh, to help our patients. One thing is comorbidities, and I illustrate the slide with, uh, anybody know what that is? That's uh, syphilis. Actually, Christina Mara showed that just a history of experiencing neurosyphilis uh, uh, we correlated with lower viral loads, even lower uh, cognitive uh, performance, even when it's been treated and long in the past. So knowledge about some of these comorbidities, co-infections, is undoubtedly uh, very important. Uh, But we know that our patients live very complicated lives, maybe a little bit more so than the general population. Uh, And there are things that happen to their brains that are probably not good. They experience trauma, sometimes from accidents, sometimes from fights and other things. Uh, They abuse themselves uh, sometimes with medicines that, They prescribe themselves, sometimes with the medicines we prescribe. Clearly, they take more drugs than others. Uh, The question of what impact hepatitis, which is quite prominent in the population, may have, and CMV uh, and syphilis. Uh, And then, you know, our patients really have complicated psychiatric uh, baselines that may affect the way they perform. So how much do these things attribute to this half or so of patients that don't perform like they should on their tests? Um, Unfortunately, I thought that it was going to be a lot of it, but unfortunately, it actually uh, isn't the big problem. So even at once in the charter population, where we carefully screened out as much of these other factors as we could reasonably, uh, still almost 40% of impairment was seen in this general population. Now, when you add trauma and other factors, Uh, it becomes a huge problem. So those people, so undoubtedly the comorbidities are contributing significantly to the problem, but they're far from the whole answer. Uh, And so we need to go on and think about it. And I sort of casually said, well, the virus uh, is not currently such a problem. After all, you're doing a great job. Ninety percent of your patients have undetectable viral loads in the periphery. How can 50 percent of the people have have abnormal brains uh, because of that. So I wanted to to see where your thinking was and understanding was about how you use the spinal fluid and what you expect to see uh, in the spinal fluid of your patients that you're treating with HIV. Say you're not like me and collect spinal fluid on almost anybody that walks in your door because you're trying to, trying to understand what's going on in their brains. What do you expect to see in the spinal fluid of HIV treated patients, is it generally just about what it is in the plasma, the virus goes back and forth, higher in the the plasma, uh, a log lower than in the plasma, or uh, never detectable when the plasma is undetectable? So, what do you think? Okay, so here we've got a little bit of uh, remedial education that we can do. Um, so, um, you know, it is, it is true that the virus goes back and forth, and uh, if you have undetectable viral loads in the plasma, uh, very commonly you'll have undetectable in the spinal fluid. In fact, most of the time you do. Uh, so, so this is not a bad answer, but most of you didn't like that. Um, generally, a log higher than in the plasma, now that actually is absolutely wrong. So, so, you know, it's really great that you've come and that I asked this question because I thought I'd taught this so many times. (laughs) Uh, You know, actually, the truth is that normally the the correct answer is this one, Um, I think. Yeah, all right. (laughs) I'm always a little worried about my own mind. Um, So, no, actually, the, the correct answer is this one. The truth is that for some reason this environment in the CSF uh, is not where the virus replicates. The cells that are there are not the main viral carrying cells. So there's usually very little virus there. And generally, in untreated patients, it's a log lower. So if you've got 1,000 copies in your blood, uh, you're entitled to 100, but not much more in the periphery. If you've got 100,000 in the blood, you may have 10,000 in the CSF. Usually it is lower. And what happens when people develop dementia and viral-driven brain disease uh, it becomes equal to the plasma and the CSF, or sometimes even higher, indicating independent replication in the CSF. Well, um, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's usually not the case, and so usually it's undetectable. And I thought many of you would say it's never undetectable in the CSF uh, when it's undetectable in the plasma, which is what is generally the case. But there are now cases, there are now reports increasing where there's viral escape. So cases where people have controlled plasma viruses, but they get detectable virus in the CSF. And at the same time, they have the onset of symptoms that are neurologic in nature. And it turns out there that there are cases where there's breakthrough and there's independent replication in the CSF. And those cases, and uh, this was a, a, a case series that a group presented at Croix this year if you select drugs that the virus in the CSF is sensitive to, then uh, you can correct that and the, and the brain problem is also addressed successfully. So knowledge that that is true uh, shows us that HIV therapy is not perfect for the brain. And in fact, it is harder to treat the brain. The drugs don't get it into the brain in their normal concentrations. And the virus uh, may genuinely evolve in this compartment in the brain separately So viral replication does occur in the CSF and it can generate different mutations and different resistance pattern. So when you have a neurologic problem, you should do a spinal tap in most cases and learn what's going on there. Sadly, with 40 or 50% of patients having some cognitive impairment, and these cases being really quite uncommon, it's clear that that simple explanation is not the reason why we have so much uh, um, cognitive impairment in the population overall. Now, um, Scott Latender has introduced this, and I think probably everybody in the audience has seen the CPE score, uh, a way to, to think about the ability of drugs to enter into the, bra- into the brain and to treat virus there. And Scott's taken a, a synthesis of a large amount of data uh, to try to, grade drugs for their ability to penetrate into the brain. And it's a very useful theoretical construct to address this. And uh, there is some data coming out of the charter that the higher the penetration score, summing up those numbers for each of the drugs in a regimen, the more likely it is that you'll get clearing of the virus from the CSF. Sadly, this is still a fairly simplistic concept, and it's been very hard to prove it. And so I think that although CPE remains an area where we're actively working in research, uh, it's not ready for guidelines. And I don't recommend it as the primary way that you think about treating patients, even those that have some cognitive impairment. Um, There is no prospective evidence that you can really fix this kind of impairment, by addressing, improving the CPE scores. And the retrospective studies that we have access to are really quite mixed in their outcomes. So we don't have convincing data that this is true. If we wanted to dial up the CPE of the drugs, the, the method of using these scores is difficult because many of the high penetrating drugs are not particularly patient friendly and you might get worse uh, adherence if you tried to use them. Um, So other ways like carrying the drugs in in nanoparticles and so on are being thought of, but at the same time we have to be very careful because these drugs do have potential toxicity and there is a reason to believe that that, uh, we might cause harm by doing this. So in the large part, we want you to address the virus just as you are, get the patients very well well controlled. If people have a subacute onset of neurological problems, you should check the CSF but it may well be that the virus is not really the driver. Could it be inflammation? And so um, you're gonna hear a wonderful talk coming up about inflammation in detail. So I'm gonna fly through this, but we're very much uh, concerned about chronic inflammation affecting this very, very delicate brain that has to compute in just precise ways for people to function at their normal level. And there is evidence Uh, although it's not overwhelming, that even after four years of perfect therapy, that a majority of the patients do not have normal evidence of immune activation in the spinal fluid, much less the brain. So things like neopterin that are markers of, of activation, while they're improved on therapy, they're not normal. This line is normal, so many people are abnormal. Same thing for immunoglobulin levels. So there's evidence of ongoing immune activation in the brain and this was illustrated at Cloy with a sort of a fascinating way. There's a compound uh, with a wonderful name of PK-11195. Uh, it's a, it's a low-affinity benzodiazepine receptor agonist. It's a very tricky compound to use, so, so people are not entirely confident that this is right. But, but there was abnormal increased inflammation that you could visualize in the brains of patients using this binding compound. It binds to activated microbial cells. So, so there's ongoing reason to believe we ought to address inflammation in the brain. Uh, Steve Deeks and others have been fascinated with CMV, which is so prevalent in the HIV population. Is that a driver that sets people up for an inflammatory state? And so uh, at the Croix, again, uh, the charter group uh, teamed up with uh, Alan Landay and group here in uh, Chicago to look at the activation of CMV Uh, In the spinal fluid of our charter group, and what we saw was that there was a correlation in the CMV IgG in the serum with it being higher, significantly higher, in the people that had uh, more, or there was more cognitive impairment in the people that had the highest activation from CMV. So another area for exploration that suggests inflammation may be a problem. The NARC group and and ACDG has tried to address this. We looked at minocycline, an antibiotic that's anti-inflammatory, and it worked in the animal model uh, very beautifully. Uh, When we applied it in the ACDG and uh, neurocognitive impairment study, uh, it absolutely had no effect compared to the placebo. And so, uh, unfortunately, a simple sort of answer has yet to come out of a practical way to address inflammation, but we're going to continue to look. People have wondered about degenerative disease, and is that being augmented by the the inflammation or some other part of the HIV process? And again, with the chartered data set and other data from uh, San Diego, Igor uh, Grant has shared this slide with me. Um, And if you disentangle the cognitive impairment scores, normally we correct them for age, So normal people, older people like me, don't score as well on these tests. This blue line is HIV negatives. Everybody gets a little worse at taking these tests, and so their ability to score declines. But there's an augmentation of that with HIV that is greater than in the population in general. So it looks like there may be an interaction that may accelerate the pace of decline with HIV. And we need to understand that. And we've looked at various things that cause decline in the general population. One of these is, of course, the most common decline in aging Americans, which is Alzheimer's disease. Uh, And markers in the brain of that are tau, phosphorylated tau and beta amyloid. And so people have looked at pathology and indeed there is a slight increase of tau and amyloid in the brains of HIV patients who are kind of young to be having those changes. So BOANCES and I looked at what's believed to be the best marker for this, a compound called PIB that binds to beta amyloid in the brains. And and, in people that are on the course to developing Alzheimer's disease, there's increased binding of this marker that shows up red and yellow like this. Our HIV patients, even those with some impairment, do not have this pattern of binding for amyloid. So we do not believe at this point that there's an acceleration of Alzheimer's disease which would be the most common cognitive driver for uh, cognitive difficulty in aging. And indeed the other biomarkers, while there is a change in amyloid somewhat like Alzheimer's, the tau does not change in the same way. So we need to understand the, uh, the metabolism of amyloid and how that works but Um, And we don't think that it's accelerated Alzheimer's disease. Final topic I wanted to mention is perfusion and vascular changes in the brains of our patients. Um, And that turns out in the current era to be the thing that's correlating best with performance. So the SMART study, as you're aware, looked at um, issues of uh, intermittent or persistent therapy and the group did look at cognitive performance. And it's very interesting even at baseline that in this group of people, it was not the HIV associated factors like the CD4 count. There was not really a difference in the, um, the scores with performance driven by the virus, but instead it was markers of prior cere- uh, vas- or, uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, cholesterol, so things that have to do with vascular disease were more tightly correlated with issues of cognitive performance than were the virus. And thinking about this in the vascular disease in the brain, Boansis has looked at the perfusion of the brain and it turns out that normal people have a perfusion that's up here at uh, 50 plus mils per, per uh, thousand grams of tissue and HIV really impairs that. So when we go in and we look at untreated HIV patients, they have a marked decrease, very significant decrease in their cerebral perfusion. Um, And when we treat them, that does improve as they do, but not to normal. And so we're wondering if this, at a minimum, is a good marker for this, and we're trying to get this into place as a biomarker in the ACDG. Um, but uh, even further, you know, how much does it contribute to the performance problems? And you can look at various parts of the brain. It's more or less in the different parts, but the pattern is the same in many, many areas of the brain. So I've left you with a lot of unknowns. The brain is like that. It's really complicated and difficult to study. And you're probably saying, well, what in the world am I gonna tell my patients? Dr. Clifford has said, I'm not so sure about the CPE being that important. you do want to know how they're doing and support them and protect them in their lives for their cognitive issues. They're still there. But what do I tell them? And, um, you know, sadly, too many of our patients are like this uh, gentleman at the train station uh, in Italy that I saw that looked uh, entirely too comfortable in the sedentary and had a bike that he was not using. Uh, and, you know, I think that what we, the one thing that we can really do that, that probably honestly does matter not just for the heart and, and life expectancy and mood, but, but for the brain, is to, to, to improve people's lifestyles. And so this is, this is actually a 70-year-old uh, psychiatrist that goes to my gym, and he actually won his age group at the, the Ironman Triathlon uh, in Hawaii. Um, amazing <laughs> guy, and, and he's really going uh, well at uh, an ad- advanced age. But, you know, we, we really need to help people to change their lifestyles, and I think that this honestly can be sold as something that can help the brain. There's no question in other settings of aging, and people with uh, Alzheimer's disease and other areas, exercising both the body and the mind are really positive things to be encouraged, and we should be doing that with our patients, taking care of themselves, a good diet, uh, and quitting smoking. So um, I, you know, I just would leave you with uh, these points. Uh, cognitive functions remain impaired in our current group, so we cannot walk away from worrying about the brains of our patients, and they may indeed get worse when they're impaired at, at the present time. Uh, what you need to do certainly is optimal therapy. You don't want to have people get low CD4 counts. Uh, you need to control the virus and eventually inflammation um, and to optimize cerebral perfusion. Uh, and really healthy lifestyles can matter and should help people with this. Uh, so uh, with that, I'd like to uh, just end by thanking uh, the organizers for allowing me to be here. Uh, I know the brain is, is really complicated and people worry about their ability to deal with it, but it is a very integral part of this uh, epidemic and something we need to continue to, uh, to optimize the therapy to address. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much. There are cards being uh, circulated, uh, and it was great to see you at the gym this morning. Uh, he practices what he uh, preaches. About half of the uh, faculty were there um, and maybe I just missed the others uh, that came before me or after. Um, and one of the things that we do at our faculty meeting the night before these courses is to review each other's talks. Uh, my, my concern about David's was, would he finish on time? And he finished almost exactly on time, so thank you very much for that. <laughs> he promised he would. Um, and So just a question while the cards come up. Uh, at least in our NPR station, we get um, one of the fundraising things are these brain tests, uh, brain exercise, computer things. Do they work, and should we be doing that in our patients? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, actually, which one you're referring
1: to. Uh, you know, I
0: don't I'm not supported, by the way, by any of those. Um,
1: so so there, there aren't any really um, good systems. Correlative studies, for the most part, and you know, it, it, it is very interesting that um, using using functions uh, in the body and in the brain seem, seem to really matter. So, so exercising, uh, you know, crossword puzzles uh, are, are excellent exercises for retrieving and considering and, and doing uh, different strategic things. So, so I think that encouraging people to to use their minds to learn and exercise that uh, seems to help. Um, there, there are also um, strategies to, to remain more physically active. They, they do seem to help people perform better on uh, cognitive tasks. It, it, it's actually quite surprising to me that it works as much as it does. Um, but uh, you know, I think that we can encourage those things in a general way. and um, be very reluctant to uh, get very specific about what, what
0: Great. Um, here's a question from the audience. Um, an increasingly common issue that as we find our resources being constrained here as well as abroad, um, for example, through the Ryan White program, if cognitive in- um, assessment in- indicates a problem, what next? Um, if, you, if you see somebody scoring um, in a clearly abnormal way on these tests, what's your practical next step to take for that patient?
1: Try to skip through the areas where I know that I could help them. And so, you know, one of the things is really at the bottom of the list, but very common, is psychiatric issues, and people have um, often do score or poor concentrate poorly, they struggle with uh, with their uh, function when they're depressed, and this is extremely common in our population. Um, and so you know, I think that treatment of depression is one of the things that you can try and indeed somebody had a depressive drug who actually wanted to test as drugs um, for protection of the as well. there's some evidence that some of the SSRIs have no protective properties in the models of toxicity of Gp120 and other portions of the virus in cell models so I think that liberal efforts to support your patients even yourself or by referral um, are very appropriate and depression is a common highly treatable problem. Um, if it's progressive, so if you detect this and it's getting worse, those are the patients where brain imaging and, uh, <coughs> and CSF analysis are indicated and I think it's important not to wait too, too long to do that. Um, efforts to optimize therapy that are aggressive um, are something that I still consider doing um, and uh, you know changing class and trying to, try to see if you can get a better tolerated or, or better better uh, treatment for them is, is reasonable. Um, beyond that, um, there's not so much. Again, lifestyle changes
0: uh, would be important. So there are a, a couple questions about that. What is, is there? data that modifying the cardiovascular risk factors changes the, the incidence or progression rate of, uh, of hand. Not yet. No, so I it's worth recommending, but not yet. Yeah, I
1: mean, um, it's, it's been really difficult to get the longitudinal studies. I mean, these, these are subtle factors. It requires a significant population because it's such a heterogeneous and, and funding and studies has been extremely difficult. The chart study has looked longitudinally over three to four years, um, and many of our patients in the hand are really stable, so it, it sort of supports the notion of watchful waiting, that we can be hopeful that people are not going to deteriorate. About 20% show a progressive course, and those, if the, the clinician that's following them might, Try to share them with the neurologist. Look for other comorbid factors. So, you know, if you're not checking regularly, for course, was. Is there hepatitis C? There interactions with other viruses? Uh, you know, I think that it's really good to be uh, very careful to go back and be critical about all the aspects of preventive care that you normally do and make sure something didn't slip through. Because everyone's a phylogic
0: so um a couple questions about the test uh, and this is kind of maybe more specific than uh than most of us will get into but is moca better than uh this one is the Fulstein mmse are there a variety of tests that clinicians might use and
1: got subtle cognitive impairment. So people continue to score well on it when they when they won't score normally well on these tests. The other thing is that um, it's now uh, a commercial test, so you're really supposed to be paying when you use it. So actually if you want to report the results you may and not um, put the company calling you up and asking you uh, to pay up if you use the MMSE. So uh, the free nature and actually better sensitivity of the local. We think is going to be a benefit. We have get a manuscript to the. Answer, actually, uh, but but we think that in theory this is a somewhat more sensitive test. It's free, and yes, so it's more helpful. It would be useful in an office setting.
0: Um, a couple questions about. Um children. Um, and the, uh, is there something different about peri, uh, perinatally infected uh, youth that have been living now for a long time? Are they showing any uh, risk for for this as well? Yeah,
1: that's that's really a very poorly studied group uh, population and very concerned about it. Um The number of That we have vertically transmitted HIV that, that seem to be problematic. Um, so far, there's not a sufficiently big study that shows a different progression. We think the same sort of biological factors are likely involved, but uh, with the virus <coughs> present during the development, one would expect that the problems might be uh, more exaggerated. Um, currently rolling through adolescence trying to figure out. So to understand what's happening with the disease, it's been very hard probably internationally. This will be an easier question to improve in the population. But because these tests are subtle and have social and educational other uh, things you have to correct for, it's it's not easy to set those studies up uh, internationally. Uh, So the bottom line is we don't know as much as we should yet, but
0: it's a very worthwhile thing. So we're out of time, but uh, there's one question on use of anti-inflammatory drugs that I'm going to defer to Russ Tracy, who will talk a lot about inflammation later in the program. But just a, a quick word, because there are two questions about genotyping uh, this uh, HIV uh, in the CNS. Should we be doing that? Is there uh, any indication? So very quickly, though, because we're out yeah, uh, of so,
1: so there is evidence that, there's, that there may be more neurocognitive. Nor- Strains of virus and so on, but that's not a clinically applicable test. So, genotyping in that sense, no. Um, What about viral resistance genotyping? If you do a CSM study, yes, try to collect viruses. If there's a virus to uh, do resistance
0: testing on, uh, you'd want to know about that, so try that. Okay, great. Thank you very much.